Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. You have me and the awesome Beth. Beth, who have we got on today? Today we have John Oliphant and we're going to take a little journey into the early modern era. So John's a historian and writer whose previous books include John Forbes, Scotland, Flanders and the Seven Years' War, Peace and War on the Anglo-Sheroki Frontier, 1756-63, and Russia in the Age of Absolutism and Enlightenment, 1682 to 1796. But today, he's here to talk about his new book, The First British Empire, Global Expansion in the Early Modern Age. Hi, John. Hi, pleasure to be here. I'm excited. We get to learn something new today. And I'm not the best at early modern, so I'm excited to get educated in this subject. But otherwise, how are you doing, John? Oh, very well, thank you. It's a nice day. I'm talking to you. What could be better? (laughs) Oh, such a charmer you are. <laughs> let's let's kick off with the first question. So what was the world stage like when England started to make its first steps into, glo- into global affairs in the 1550s? OK, well, it's a very big question, quite clearly. First thing to remember is that England was very late into the Oceanic Empire business. And as early as the mid 15th century, the Portuguese had already made their way to the coast of West Africa and later found their way round the tip of Africa into the Indian Ocean and established an Oceanic Empire chain of naval bases there, which was intended to divert trade uh, from the overland route through the Middle East, round the Cape. Uh, The Spanish, uh, from 1492, been uh, colonising the newly discovered Americas, and by the 1550s, they had a, a huge land empire uh, they destroyed the Aztec and Inca empires, and they become extremely powerful because of the because of the trade involved in this, which included things like leather and plantation products like sugar, but most famously, of course, gold and silver from Mexico and particularly from Peru, which was exported across the isthmus of Panama and home by annual convoys. So they're very late getting into the into the the empire business. They also had col- uh, the Portuguese also, of course, had colonies in the in the Azores and Madeira. So all over the place, the opportunities you might have thought were the great and uh, the reasons for that. Uh, one was uh, that the England uh, is geographically placed on the very, very fringe of the of the cir- tra- sorry trade system, wind systems, which are much more uh, much more beneficial for the Iberian kingdoms. And also there was 
if you think about the Iberian kingdoms, they had a they their uh, conquests were an extension of their reconquest of their own territory from the Moors. Uh, England was still in the process of conquering Ireland, and there is a there is a view that uh, the methods used to colonize, conquer and colonize Ireland, bring it firmly under English control, uh, were very similar to the methods later used in the Americas. Um, so that's the beginning. Uh, I should also emphasize that Europe at this point was not the technologically dominant uh, power, the group of powers that you might think of. Uh, the empires in, in China, for example, and India were much stronger, at least as sophisticated and technologically in terms of military will at sea, but not on land. So that's the that's the broad picture of the of the uh, position in the 1550s. Now, that's really important to note that it wasn't just a European phenomenon. Um, and but returning to the idea of some of these other European empires that had been perhaps a bit more established than the British in, in trying to take advantage of other, you know, other countries and their resources at this time. What kind of things were the British trying to do to, to kind of compete with the others, such as Spain and Portugal? Okay, um, what's important for the start is that this is English enterprise rather than British enterprise. Um, the uh, one, one aspect was trying to break into the Portuguese and Spanish trade monopolies, which was both difficult and dangerous. Uh, most famously, of course, John Hawkins uh, took an expedition to West Africa, uh, picked up a cargo with some difficulty, picked up a cargo of slaves and transported them across to the Americas where the, the Spanish had need of them. Uh, what went wrong, of course, was that this, uh, the Spanish uh, took umbrage and San Juan de Aloha, the uh the English fleet was pretty well destroyed by an, by an incoming Spanish convoy. So uh, that was one way, break into the trade. Spanish don't like it. Uh, we must try another way. And the other way, of course, was more or less licensed piracy. Pirates like Frobisher and Drake and Hawkins and people like that, they were pirates, let's face it, were licensed pretty well by the Crown to go and uh, go and attack uh, Spanish shipping, uh, Spanish colonies, and take whatever they could. Now, the problem was that the English resources didn't stretch at that stage to permanently capturing and occupying uh, a Spanish base. So, for example, uh, 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 Nombre de Dios on the peninsula, on the isthmus of Panama, where the uh, the sewer trains from Peru came across, uh, that could be captured several times. But once the Spanish reacted, they could no longer be held. So you could raid these places, you could probably steal whatever was there, but you had to get the timing right, and you certainly couldn't stay there permanently. So it's it's a it's a plundering culture. Philip II of Spain became king of Portugal, partly because he had a legitimate claim, but mostly because he had an army. And, uh, and therefore, uh, fought higher and therefore open to attack. Well, that's basically basically it, really. There was a certain amount of legitimate trade going on with Spain, but not with the Spanish Empire. Well, moving on to somewhere 
a little bit further out of the scope that we'd usually think of Europe, which is North America. And that is clearly an obvious place for Britain to start to colonise. How does that work out for them across the 17th century? Now, that is another very big question and very complicated. I'll try. That's fine. Don't worry about it. Uncomplicated as much as I can. Don't often think uh, as much now about colonisation as though it's sort of this inevitable incoming tide of civilization. Uh, but as often we think about it from the point, other points of view, uh, particularly those of the Native Americans, for whom it's an invasion. Uh, so I'd just like to bear that in mind as, as we talk. Uh, uh, Ian Steele's great book, Warpaths, is about that. Its subtitle is Invasions of North America and sees it from the Indian point of view. Uh, Daniel Richter's done another, a lot of good work on this as well and various other historians. Um, so bearing that in mind, uh, the English colonies get established after the war with Spain is over. That's what makes it possible. Uh, and so you get a, a series of colonies developed around the Chesa around Chesapeake Bay, uh, Virginia, of course, uh, Maryland, and so on. Uh, and they become dependent very largely on tobacco tobacco production. So much so, in fact, that the uh, that the law banned uh, banned tobacco cultivation in England. It became illegal. You can grow it here, but it, but it became illegal, uh, even though uh, even though Virginian tobacco was much more expensive because of the long shipping haul. And the reason the reason for doing that was to keep Virginia going. Why do we want to keep Virginia going? For the very reason that the cargoes have to come by sea, and the purpose was to uh, was to build up English naval resources, and that's not just ships, but sh uh, ships and shipping, but shipyards, trained sailors, and so forth, and thing and uh, naval stores. Um, so it's about security as much as about wealth. Okay, further south, um, you get the you get a. Uh, uh, Carolina, which was a proprietary colony, that is, it was granted uh, to a proprietor by royal patent, uh, as was indeed uh, Maryland, uh, and that became reliant on rice. So these are plantation colonies, and they eventually uh, come to rely less on indentured, uh, indentured white labor, which was the first choice, but on black slaves imported from West Africa. Uh, so it's about about the middle of the 17th century that this change starts to take place. And uh, that's when the English get seriously involved in the slave trade. They're very late. And even then, the Portuguese were the biggest dealers for a long time. Uh, OK, um, further, further north, what they call sometimes called the middle colonies. Uh, there is uh, Pennsylvania. That's another great for Quakers. And. Uh, he set about dispossessing the Indians by treaty, but it's dispossession nevertheless. And by the 18th century, a pencil character of Pennsylvania had changed remarkably. And as I hope we'll have a chance to mention later, uh, they're uh, very much into fraud and uh, deception in their in their expansionist policies. Um, go further north, we have uh, New York and New Jersey. Uh, New York used to be New Netherland was Dutch, 
Uh, New Jersey had been had a Swedish had been Swedish at one point. Uh, it was taken in the mid 1660s by James Duke of York, who had a uh, who was had a uh, patent to take it over and run it as his. And the James became king in uh, 1685. Of course, it became a royal colony. So you have royal colonies and proprietary colonies. So it's a bit of a mess, really. You go further north into the New England colonies, the most northerly ones, where the uh, uh, economy is about fishing and farming, Protestant religious refugees. Maryland was a refuge for Catholics. Uh, so this is a refuge for various kinds of uh, Protestant, if you give the word, extremists, um, just freedom and toleration. In fact, what they came for was to carve out a place where their particular take on the Christian religion could dominate. Um, so for a long time in Massachusetts, for example, um, you couldn't vote unless you were a member of the Presbyterian, uh, the sorry, not the Presbyterian, the Congregationalist Church. Uh, these were chartered colonies. They had their own charter uh, founded by uh, uh, charter uh, granted by the crown to co particular companies, and that made them more or less independent. Massachusetts, in particular. Uh, Massachusetts Bay Company took its charter to Massachusetts and set up its headquarters there instead of in London. And attempts by Charles I to revoke that charter uh, were not successful. So what we're seeing is the development of a tradition of self-government, particularly in New England, but right through the other colonies. Uh, control from the centre is uh, is very loose. Uh, the last enterprise I'd like to mention, established by yet another charter company, the Hudson Bay Company. Uh, its first uh, head was Prince Rupert, who had been Charles I's cavalry commander in the Civil Wars. Um, and uh, that was principally for trade with the Native Americans. And I'd better add that trade with the Native Americans was something that was important to the economies of all those colonies. And that so far, of course, is the is just the American. American mainland, we haven't been going on from the uh, from the early 17th century, and in particular Jamaica, which was captured during a war with Spain in the 1650s. And to move on geographically again, so thinking about India and Africa, uh, what were kind of the, I guess, the, the early um, inroads of England's interests in India and Africa in a colonial sense? Okay. Um, well, the, the draw of uh, of Asia, of course, was the Asian trade products, uh, exotic products, I mean, famously the spice trade, the Malaccas. Um, but uh, the difficulty was powerful Asian states, and particularly the, the Mughal Empire, which was expanding at this stage further and further south. Uh, so even the Portuguese, who had been there for some time, could only uh, control enclaves like Goa or the city of Malacca. Um, they're really, uh, I could hold on to those through medieval strength, but they really couldn't make territorial conquests at all. Uh, the English are in even a weaker position. Uh, their first emissary to India, a guy called Roe, uh, for trade concessions, and they're eventually allowed to set up trading posts on a number of enclaves by consent. The Mughal Empire could probably have turfed them out at any time. So it's not like the Americas at all. 
Uh, in fact, you could argue this is hardly empire at all, a series of ports and trading posts run by the East India Company. Um, in Africa, much the same sort of things going on. Um, there are there are trading posts, not just for slaves, but very as for gold. A Royal Africa Company uh, was more was initially much more interested in gold from what we now call Ghana uh, than than in slaves. And uh, the trading posts there were at the mercy of powerful African states. The differential in military power wasn't that much wasn't that great. Uh, tropical diseases uh, meant the casualty rate was among whites was very high, um, and uh, they were they were there more or less at the mercy of of powerful African states. Um, so well into the 18th century, uh, there's no colony as we would as we would imagine it in Africa that has to wait until the creation of Sierra Leone right at the end of the period. And then for substantial conquests in Africa, you have to wait till the late 19th century uh, when you have the delights of quinine, which uh, dealt with malaria, and of course, machine gun, which has a which has a rather nastier connotation. Uh, so these are fragments, enclaves, little dots on the map. It's arguable this wasn't empire at all. The boot was very much on the other foot. And I'd like to underline that point because this empire as a whole was very fragile, as we've seen. The American colonies were decentralized, were self-governing, they were divided, they were very different, they quarreled amongst themselves. Um, the uh, possessions in the Caribbean were always vulnerable to, uh, to attack by foreign powers or to slave revolt. And in India and Africa, as we've just seen, you've got something that could hardly be described as empire at all. This is a very fragile enterprise. I'm curious to know, how involved is Britain in European affairs at this time? Now, Europe is the key. The empire exists, okay, obviously for economic reasons, uh, but also, uh, and perhaps principally, because England is very weak in Europe and is continually under threat. Really? It's a second-rate power. At, least. at best, it's a second-rate power. Uh, France has much more resources in terms of uh, territorial area, natural resources, population, armed force, all the rest of it. And its government was much more absolutist and therefore able to tax more heavily and keep uh, keep large armies. Uh, that's where Louis XIV's power came from. Uh, Spain is also a great power at this stage. Uh, so, uh, so the priority is how can we defend ourselves in a Europe where we are actually small time, basically? And of course, religion comes into that. The, uh, from the late 16th century, of course, Britain was obvious, England anyway, was, was Protestant. Um, and these were Catholic powers. So that there's that, there's that religious dimension as well. So, uh, how can we compensate? We can compensate by establishing a commercial empire which is regulated to uh, to produce a powerful naval force which can keep these foreigners at bay. Um, and that's done through a series of of uh, regulations and laws called the uh, navigation system. 
And the idea was that trade with the English colonies would be monopolized by English, or very nearly monopolized by English ships. And some really important commodities like naval stores, that's pitch and tar and so on, um, and uh, valuable things like tobacco, sugar, could only be taken from that, from an English colony to another English port. Um, so it's all about keeping the foreigners out. Uh, and uh, alliances in Europe are also important. Cromwell himself, uh, during his when he decided on a war with Spain in the mid in the mid seventeenth uh, century, uh, made an alliance with Catholic France. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And there is a doctrine which grows up, becomes particularly important in the 18th century. We cannot survive without a, a powerful European ally. Otherwise, they could combine and outbuild us uh, at sea. And that becomes that becomes the, uh, the English native, the British nightmare. What if France and Spain combine against us? Um, therefore, we've got to keep, uh, we've got to have a powerful, at least one powerful ally in Europe. And the purpose of this empire is to make sure we're safe. And one of the themes of our episode here so far is just how vast some of these events we are, we're talking about are and how complicated. And so we're going to kind of put you on the spot again with this question, um, which again, you know, was, was more complex, I'm sure, than we can cover. But we wanted to ask about um, the early 18th century. Um, in terms of Britain and America colonies, what was going, what were kind of going on, the key events between 1713 and 1754? Okay. Well, this is the period, of course, of so-called salutary England. We're now talking about British governments, of course, after the after the union with Scotland in the 1707, where they tended to let the colonies govern themselves. And that's very important because it, it encourages the old 17th century uh, mentality of we are self-governing entities. We tax ourselves, we make laws for ourselves. Uh, the home country doesn't interfere very much. And that's building up trouble for the future because the time will come, uh, when you need to be, you need to have much more control from the center. I'm sure we'll come to that shortly. Um, okay. Uh, 1713, of course, uh, there's, uh, is the peace after the war of the Spanish succession. Uh, English acquire, uh, Nova Scotia, formerly Acadia. And uh, they uh, they also create Georgia, which was originally a refuge for English paupers and became another plantation colony in due course. OK, so there are already flashpoints here. Uh, French in Canada and the uh, uh, already had a had a uh, boundary dispute. So you've got a boundary dispute going on between uh between Nova Scotia and New France, where exactly is the boundary? Is it in the mainland or is it on the isthmus? Um, you've got flashpoints uh, developing in the uh, Lake Champlain Hudson 
Valley area where English settlements push, pushing up river uh, are encountering what the French regarded as their patch era. And elsewhere, elsewhere there are, there are pressures too. Um, all right, let's, let's think about some principal events. Uh, war does break, war breaks out in 17, well, which depends on which, which date you take, 1742 for the actual uh, entry of, of Britain into the War of the Austrian Succession. 1744, if you're thinking about the actual declaration of war. And uh, one result of that was the uh, a New England expedition against the fortress of Louisbourg on Cape Breton Island. Uh, which was uh, which was captured, much to the delight of the New Englanders who wanted to eliminate competition, who wanted to destroy uh, Catholic uh, Catholic churches and chop down their altars, uh, and also wanted to stop French privateering from that particular source. Um, it was handed back in, at the peace in 1748 in exchange for concessions elsewhere. So by 1748, stable situation in North America, English settlements are spreading out and tending to threaten the French position in Louisiana and New France. Uh, the, uh, 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 by the way, the French settlements were not principally about settlement; they are about uh, trade with the trade with the Indians, the trade in furs and skins, uh, and so they weren't such a threat to the Indians. And that brings in the Indian dimension again. Indians had to decide where their best interests lay, not whose side they're on, but the best way to play to keep their autonomy and independence. So you could go from the Iroquois or the Six Nations at this stage, um, are just south of the Great Lakes, uh, the Mohawk uh, nation within the Iroquois Confederacy was under great pressure from, uh, from uh, British expansion. Uh, and their numbers were going down. Further, far in the far west, the Senecas, much more numerous, um, much more powerful, uh, and more inclined to fight to identify their interests with those of the of the French. So you've got you've got this three way uh, instability going on. Uh, if I can, I can just get onto a hobby horse for a moment. Further south, the Cherokee, uh, not a, not always thought as being an important. Uh, frontier, but there, the Cherokee and the mountains of what's now what's now North Carolina and Tennessee uh, were divided. What's best for us, the English, who can provide us with rivetly abundant quantities of trade goods, and by this time Indians are heavily dependent on uh, and for warfare, obviously, uh, all sorts of manufactured objects, right down to steel fish hooks, which make life easier. And some of the old the old skills are going. So the French are however of less of a threat to land. So there's a division there. So there's a very potentially very violent uh, and unstable war. Now what triggers that into war? Um, well, um, in 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 Britain you've got uh, uh, ideas about a, a tighter control over North America coming through. Um, George Montague Dunk. Lord, Lord Halifax, who's president of the Board of Trade and was able to actually get himself in uh, cabinet rank by the end of the period, um, was pushing for much tighter control. The spread of uh, 
of land speculation and settlement in North America is also tending to war. And the key there, I suppose, is the penetration by Virginians and Pennsylvanians into the Ohio Valley. Um, among the chief speculators was a, was a chap called George Washington. You may have heard of him. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah, he was an investor in the Ohio Company, which bought, which was allowed to buy uh, huge areas of wilderness on the Ohio River, which, of course, is on the western side of the Appalachian Mountains. Um, but that was an area, of course, which the French felt was was their patch. And any expansion further down the Ohio might threaten their communications between uh, New France, Canada and Louisiana. So there's a clash. Um, the French build actually build a chain of forts uh, from the lakes right down to the Ohio. The Virginians uh, start building their own fort at the point where the, where the two rivers, the Mulligan and the Allegheny, uh, join to form the Ohio. And the French come and kick them out. And uh, George Washington, in fact, uh, was tricked by a Native American who wanted an English alliance into attacking a French reconnaissance party and was subsequently himself engaged and defeated at a place called Great Meadows. So now you've got violence between the French and the colony of Virginia. Other colonies don't seem very anxious to help Virginia very much. So the Board of Trade and the Secretary of State in London ordered colonies to meet at Albany in New York at a Congress to decide on united action. They couldn't. Uh, there were some pretty shady land deals with the Indians around the fringes of it. It's a bit like the, you know, like the fringe of a party political conference now. Um, and that uh, aside from uh, aside from that, there is no real agreement on uh, on co on cooperative action. So what's the alternative? The alternative is direct British intervention for the first time. So starting from 1755. And that's significant because having a single military leader for all 13 colonies, that takes away the military autonomy of the colony, individual colonies. And they don't like that. They also create two superintendents of Indian affairs, one from the north, one from the south. And they're supposed to coordinate Indian policy across their patches. The individual colonies don't like that either. Um, and so a lot of tension is built up in the course of what French and Indian War, which lasts until 1763. And the result is a uh, the re result, of course, is a, a massive, massive British victory in the end, largely based on superior naval resources and superior manpower resources in the pastoral terminal point of 1754. Right. This doesn't end everything, though, does it? Because you've got the Seven Years War in Europe. You've got the French and Indian War, and all of these seem to have a huge effect on the empire, don't they? They do. Um, and uh, for the most obvious point is the is the huge expansion of, of British territories, enormous conquests. Uh, Canada's taken. Uh, the east, uh, the eastern half of uh, of uh, Louisiana is taken. Right, right up to the middle of the boundary now becomes the Mississippi River. The only remaining non-British possession on this side is uh, New Orleans, and that and the western half of Louisiana was, uh, and by the way, is transferred to Spain. Spanish, and that, of course, is compensation for the British taking Florida. 
um, for the Floridas, but even temporarily conquered, uh, conquered Manila in the, uh, in the Philippines. So there's a huge range of conquests here. Uh, the French are defeated in India, uh, just at the point where the Mughal Empire seems to be falling apart. So for the first time, you could say Britain emerges as a great power on the global stage, still very vulnerable in European terms. So that's one thing. Second thing that happens is these wartime measures I mentioned, these centralizing measures, commander in chief, the superintendents and so forth, uh, tend to become permanent. And one reason for that, of course, is uh, a feeling that the empire is really out of control. Uh, another reason is that the French and the Spanish may want revenge. Therefore, we better heavily garrison uh, our new conquests in Florida and in Canada. And so what we'd better do is to get those Native Americans on our side by controlling the expansionist tendencies of the mainland colonies. They don't like that. Um, there was a proclamation in 1763, um, which Royal Proclamation, which drew a notional boundary line along the top of the Appalachians, along the, uh, along the heads of the uh, eastward flowing rivers. And beyond that, no, uh, no white settlement was supposed to take place. Now that was next, almost impossible to enforce, um, but it was there. The following year, there was actually a plan to uh, an overall plan to control settlement and trade, and uh, in and uh, other aspects of Indian affairs along that whole line. Um, so you're getting tensions already building up resulting from the Seven Years' War, uh, resentments of imperial authority. And the one factor which perhaps had kept the Americans uh, away from rebellion so far had gone, and that's the presence of the French. So an awful lot of tension is building up. Uh, I can mention the superintendent of Indian affairs in the South, a chap called John Stewart, who was very zealous in enforcing the rules about land acquisition and trade the resources Britain actually had, but it was enough to cause a lot of resentment in America. And it's also connected with the famous um, the famous uh, dispute over, ta over direct taxation by Parliament, because he's Indian presence to prove your sincerity and bona fide, if that was necessary, and he provided trade goods. That could cost thousands of pounds each time. So taxing America, perhaps the only way of paying for that. Now, if you whatever, uh, you don't like that at all. We're talking about people like George Washington here and Benjamin Franklin, who are both expansionists. And uh, and uh, traders on the frontier didn't like it. The merchants who supplied them didn't like it. So you're building up an awful lot of resentment through trying to do what seemed to be the, sen the right and sensible thing. So there's uh, uh, there's quite a quite a lot of tension building up here. And as we all know, we have uh, the little famous Stamp Act riots, riots against the the Stamp Act, the indirect tax on uh, documents, um, the Townsend duties, which were import duties designed to raise a revenue. I didn't like that. In some of the 1770s, you've got a certain amount of a certain amount of uh, violence going on, actually, and you've got the British thinking about how long do we how long do we keep on making concessions to these people? When do we put our feet down? And from 1768, uh, the Increase the, increase the garrisons in the eastern cities, particularly in New York. 
So you've got the potential for a showdown. So two things, really. Uh, Britain becomes a great power. Uh, Britain becomes a very, uh, has a very expand, much expanded empire. But there are also big tensions building up within the, uh, within the North American colonies, uh, which, of course, as we know, are going to have explosive effects. And we don't have time today to more than nod to the um, American wars from the mid-70s onwards, which had a, a global influence as well, of course. But, John, we wanted to round off by thinking about how the empire of this time was able to adapt and therefore continue on into you know, the next century, etc. What kind of way would you be your, your final thoughts on that? OK, um, how did... In other words, how did Britain survive the War of American Independence, basically? Um, right. Well, the war ended not with the... Everyone expected that Britain would be a second-rate power after the after the, after the the independence of the United States. It didn't work. That's Canada, including Nova Scotia. Uh, their, the position in India was much stronger. Some people used to talk in terms of a swing to the east, a little misleadingly, I'm afraid. Um, but there is something in that, in that the... Uh, Asian commerce and Asian empire becomes more important, although the Atlantic empire doesn't go away. So there is the, there is potential for rebuilding there. Um, the, uh, the prime minister from 1783, William Pitt the Younger, actually set about rebuilding in terms of financial reform, but also building up uh, and reinforcing what he saw as a French threat in Indian waters. Uh, and part of that, surprisingly enough, was the colonisation of New South Wales. There's been a debate going on about this for years and years. Uh, uh, traditional Australian historians, um, the alternative view, which has gained a lot of traction and as much more support for it, even evidence to support it now, is that it was a strategic investment. Uh, if the if the French and Spanish managed to block the uh, straight through the Indonesian archipelago, uh, then the, uh, the annual China convoys were extremely valuable, uh, couldn't get through. In fact, if one was captured, that would be a disaster. But if you put a, a port on the east coast of Australia, so ships could come round that way, round the long way, it's a backdoor to China. It's also potentially a base for putting pressure on the Spanish possessions in in Latin America, being as a place where you could uh, you could uh, acquire naval stores. Uh, superficially, it looked as though in the in that region there was pine trees for masts and there was flax for sails. Uh, turned out to be uh, not as good as had been thought. So, really, the convicts were a means of uh, well, a lot of the only people who would go, obviously, to such a remote place. Um, so there's a there's a lot of awareness that you you've got uh, you've got these resources to build on. Um, the Pitt government also uh, tried to shut the Americans out for for Britain. So the so there is, if you like, a lot of empire left. The United States is gone. British still uh, control for a long time. They agreed at peace to get out of the territories northwest of the and provide the promised compensation for loyalists in the United States itself. Uh, and that enabled them to uh, conspire with the local Indian nation early for a while. So there's an awful lot of empire left, and there's a certain amount of energy for exploiting and building on it. And that's still thought to be necessary because in Europe, 
Britain is vulnerable. Britain is vulnerable. And that became even more apparent uh, during the wars against the French Republic and Napoleon. Uh, a powerful European neighbour allowed to build up its big naval capacity could be a deadly threat. Therefore, we've got to build up our naval and imperial resources to counter that. If, as in the uh, War of American Independence, Spain and France join together, you've got a catastrophic situation. So uh, there was the United uh, ruin the empire uh, carries on. John, this has been so interesting. And I wish we could sit here and talk a little bit longer about the empire because there is just so much. And I'm assuming your book is far more in depth than everything we've just spoken about because clearly you can't, you, you can't do everything in, in, in 45 minutes. <laughs> no, no, I'm sorry. I, I probably went on a bit too much. No, that's fine. Don't worry about no. it. So listen, can you just remind our listeners the name of your book? Yes, it's called The First British Empire, Oceanic Expansion in the Early Modern Age. And it covers the period from about 1558, which is just a convenient date because that's the uh, beginning of the reign of Queen Elizabeth I. And it goes to around 1815, which, of course, is the end of the Napoleonic Empire in Europe. Um, Fabulous. Yeah. What we'll do, we'll get your book in our bookshop. So you get a piece of the money, we get a piece of the money, and the big shop that is how, that is named after uh, a river Hello? in South America, I think. <laughs> Chris always does his ending far better than I do, but we will get it in our bookshop for you. Thank you so much for joining us, John. Well, that's so kind of you. Thank you for the time and the conversation. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.